Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Psalm 139. We are winding down in our Psalm series, our series through Psalms this summer. So we have this week and the following week. We'll conclude our summer series in Psalms. But today we'll be in Psalm 139. Psalm 139 is a beautiful psalm that Charles Spurgeon calls one of the most notable of the sacred hymns. Reading this psalm leaves one humbled by the glory of God. It is a song of majestic proportion. Psalm 139 is broken up into four stanzas, and each stanza comprises of six verses. Likely, there are verses familiar within this psalm that you've heard before. Many sermons have been preached on the sanctity of life coming from Psalm 139. But I hope to emphasize what the central truth of this psalm is, what David's main point, albeit the Lord's main point through David, here in Psalm 139 this morning. This psalm declares truth, deep truth about God, who he is. It also demonstrates David's response to the knowledge of God. The psalm is written with a heavy amount of tension, and that we read in English, we can kind of miss the tension that's there, but as you start to peel back the layers and look at the original language, there's a lot of tension in this psalm that we'll see this morning. I think it's purposeful. I think it's revealing two responses to the declaration that David gives of the revelation of God in this psalm. And this psalm concludes with a right application of this knowledge. At face value, we may be tempted to bristle at the fourth stanza, the ending of this psalm. In fact, many sermons, just in a quick online search, I I looked to see how many sermons, and there were many sermons on Psalm 139, and many of them left the final six verses out completely. Yes, really. I think that's a mistake. See, our culture embraces the coffee mug verses, right? And we just want to ignore the verses that are a little bit harder to realize, like, what is that even doing there? Why is it there? It's there for a purpose. And so instead of ignoring uh, the final six verses, we are going to see how, and I hope to show you this morning, that, that it would be a mistake to ignore that, that this culminates David's response to what he declares in the first portion of this psalm. There's one task before we get into the text in Psalm 139. Uh, Psalm 139 addresses some larger theological topics, so I want to provide some definitions to themes that we'll run into in the text. You may have heard of the study of theology or theology proper, which is a study of who God is as he has shown himself in his word. The point or the aim of theology proper is to reveal the glory of God in such a way as to evoke a desire for deeper, intimate, and accurate knowledge of God. So if you think you don't need theology, my friends, you are mistaken. It evokes a response as we see God accurately. And that response we'll see in Psalm 139 this morning as well. It drives us to a deeper, intimate, and accurate knowledge of God. That intimate knowledge of God shapes our emotional perspective on the world around us, the experiences that we have. That accurate knowledge of God shapes our intellectual perspective, the way we think, the way we view the world around us. 
If you lean too heavily in one direction, you're in danger of misunderstanding God. We need both, an intimate and an accurate knowledge of God. And God has given us two primary tools for gaining knowledge of him. One, his word. Praise God, we have it in our own language. We can read it. We even have multiple translations that we can study. We even have many, there's more study resources available for God's word right now than there ever has been. You don't have to learn Greek. You don't have to learn Hebrew. You don't have to learn Latin, although those things are helpful. You don't have to learn to be able to get into God's word. The primary tool that God has given us for gaining knowledge of him is his word, the Bible. The second one is his people, the church. God has given us a context in which we are to grow, and that's within the context of the church. As we encourage and exhort one another, as we learn about God through his revealed word within the faith community of the church. These are two beautiful gifts that God has given to us. To aid in our understanding of God, some theologians have separated God's attributes, who God is, into two categories. One category they call the communicable attributes. These are attributes which human beings share with God as his image bearers, created in his likeness. I'll give you an example of a communicable attribute, the ability to love. Albeit our ability is distorted by sin, whereas God is the very definition of what love is. Nonetheless, we have been created for the capacity to love and be loved. Praise God for that. This is something that we share. God has shared this with us as his creatures. This is one example of a communicable attribute where we, God allows us to share and participate in that attribute. The second category are incommunicable attributes, those attributes that belong to God alone. We do not share in these. Psalm 139 emphasizes God's incommunicable attributes, those we do not share. As David exclaims God's power, God's goodness, God's sovereign rule over his creation. So we'll see three, primary three primarily three incommunicable attributes. The first one is called God's omniscience. It is God's exhaustive knowledge. God's omniscience is the attribute by which God perfectly and eternally knows all things that can be known, past, present, and future. There's no gap or lack in God's knowledge. There is nothing God does not know. The second incommunicable attribute we'll see of God is God's omnipresence, his comprehensive presence. God's omnipresence is the attribute of God by virtue of which he fills the universe in all its parts and is present everywhere at once. There is nowhere God is not. And the third that we'll see in Psalm 139 is God's omnipotence, his unrestrained will. God's omnipotence is the attribute of God that describes his ability to do whatever he wills, limited only by his nature. He therefore cannot do anything contrary to his nature. There's nothing which can overpower God. An example of of God's nature limiting him is uh, in James, it says that God cannot lie. We see in Scripture God cannot sin. Those are things that, that, that only God can limit himself. There's nothing external outside of God that can limit him. He only cannot do that which is not who he is. So these three 
uh, theological attributes we will see this morning on display in Psalm 139. But I want to recognize there is tension that exists and questions that arise when we talk about God being everywhere. I'm not talking about God having no lack or gap in his knowledge. When we talk about God having no limit to, then we, there's problems that come with that, where we look at the world around us and we go, really? There's tension that exists. It does not mean that it's not true, just because we see things that we cannot explain. David approaches that in Psalm 139 as well. There's tension in Psalm 139, just as there is in these theological understandings of God. The tension in 139 has left some theologians wondering if David is comforted by the truths he expresses or if he's conflicted about these truths. I've come to see that the ambivalence is intentional. Those who know and trust God intimately and accurately, as we'll see David as he walks us through this psalm, we'll see this is where he lands. Though they may wrestle with such knowledge, ultimately they find comfort in this psalm. Whereas those who do not know or trust God or merely intellectually know some information about him or have had an emotional experience, but they don't have a full, intimate, and accurate knowledge of God, they do not find comfort in this psalm. It creates conflict. And so what I hope we'll see in Psalm 139 this morning is that God's exhaustive personal knowledge, his comprehensive presence, his unrestrained will, are comfort to his children and terror to his enemies. Let us read Psalm 139 together. This is a psalm of David given to the choir master. Psalm 139, verse one. David says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search on my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. 
Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way of everlasting. This is God's word. In the first stanza, we see David cry out, all my ways are known by God. We sing that song frequently here. All my ways, everything. And he uses a, a, a rhetorical device common to Hebrew, Hebrew literature known as a merism. And it's a combination of two contrasting parts to reveal the whole. So it's, it's two extremes that imply everything in between. You've likely heard the idiom, I've searched everywhere, right? I've searched high and I've searched low, and I just can't find what I'm looking for. That's an example of a merism, where you have two extremes that imply everything in between. And David uses a number of these to emphasize his point. God's knowledge is complete. God's knowledge is exhaustive. Not only that, but God's knowledge is personal. It's not that, for David, it's not just that God knows everything, it's that God knows him. It's personal. David says, when I sit, when he sits in contemplation, when he rises to take action, he says, God, you discern, you understand, you perceive my thoughts from afar. Last Sunday, Pastor Mike preached in Psalm 138, which used this phrase, uh, from afar, and it used it in a different way. Uh, the Psalm, in one, Psalm 138 was using it to uh, express the Lord's posture toward the arrogant or the prideful, saying he keeps them at a distance. This phrase, although it's the same way, it's used slightly different. It takes a slightly different meaning, where what David is trying to emphasize here is proximity is unnecessary for God's knowledge. It is necessary for us, for us to have intimate knowledge, not merely just knowing facts about person, but, but understanding the way that they think. It's required for us to spend time with them. We have to hang around them. David is emphasizing that this is not so with God. His knowledge is complete without any aid. It doesn't need time to gather observation, growing understanding. God's Knowledge of David, of us, of all that he has created is complete. He needs none of these things that we need to gain knowledge of someone. In fact, David says God's knowledge of him was so complete, it was complete even before David took his own breath, his very first breath. Not only does God know David's ways, he knows his thoughts, as we see in verse 2. Even before his words are spoken, God knows him. So David wants to paint this picture. God is not lacking any knowledge about anything. God's knowledge is exhaustive. It is complete. God knows all things. 
God's knowledge is not constrained to experience like ours. We must experience or learn from others' experiences to gain knowledge, not so with God. His knowledge is complete. So stanza one comes to a close with a declared result of God's knowledge, God's complete knowledge that he searches out David's path, his lying down. He's acquainted with all of David's ways. He knows all of David's thoughts. He knows all of David's words, even before David thinks to form them. God has knowledge of it. You know it all together, he says. And so David's conclusion is, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. David's conclusion, this knowledge is too wonderful, too lofty, too high. I cannot attain it. Charles Spurgeon on this point wrote this. He said, quote, be not surprised that the most glorious God should in his knowledge be high above all the knowledge to which we can attain. It must be, it must of necessity be so. Since we are such poor limited beings and when we stand a tiptoe, we cannot reach to the lowest step of the throne of the eternal. There's a humility here in recognizing who we are in light of seeing who God is. What is unclear at this point in the psalm is if David views this as something that is positive or something that is negative. God hems him in. Is this remark a positive expression of God's protection, like the, the walls around a city, or is, or is there apprehension of God's confinement? Is God's hand upon David providing assurance or providing correction? What makes it less clear is that the Hebrew word translated as wonderful or marvelous can also and is also translated as difficult or weighty or overwhelming. Again, I think this is purposeful. I think David is showing. You can respond to this knowledge in two ways. It can be heavy, difficult. You can say, God knows all my ways, even that thing I did last Tuesday. Uh-oh. Or it can be comforting. God's knowledge is exhaustive. He knows me personally. As we come to a close in this first stanza, we see that God's exhaustive personal knowledge, his comprehensive presence, and unrestrained will are comfort to his children, terror to his enemies. We reach the second stanza, verses 7 through 12. David asks a few rhetorical questions. Where can I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? See, ESV softens verse 7 a bit and reveals their bias of David's disposition towards God, God's complete knowledge as something that's wonderful, which I believe is the accurate conclusion, but I think it's premature at this point. I think David wants that tension to remain there. Is this comforting? Is this conflicting? I think he wants, wants that tension to remain there. But he does land. I agree with where ESV lands with this. Ultimately, David says, I'm comforted by this. And we see by that eruption of worship that we read a little bit ago in the middle of the psalm, David is comforted ultimately by this. 
I like the way NASB allows that tension to be a little, little bit more. A New American Standard Bible translates that instead of uh, where shall uh, or where where shall I go, uh, where wait, what is it? Can I go? ESV. ESV is can I go? Oh, can is NASB. I had it backwards in my notes. <laughs> All right, NASB uses where can I go from your spirit, which leaves some of that tension there, right? Is this a positive thing? Does David view this as a positive thing? Like, God, you know everything about me. Where can I go that, that I can even get away from your spirit? Like, there's this tension that's there. Where shall I go? No, you're, you're everywhere. The conclusion that David has to his rhetorical questions is, God, there is nowhere you are not. And he uses some beautiful poetic language Where shall I go from your spirit? If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Essentially, he's saying, if I go to the highest of heights, if I go to the lowest of lows, God, you are there. If I dig deep down into the earth, into the grave, you are there. If I ascend up into the heavens, you are there. If I, if I rise with the, the, the wings of the dawn, essentially what David is saying is that if I go as far east, that's west, if I go as far east as I can possibly fathom, God, guess what? You're, you're there. And if I go to the depths of the sea, again, Israel's situated right on the Mediterranean Sea, so the desert's to the east where the sun rises, and the sea is to the west. And so he goes, if I go as far west as I could fathom, God, you are there. What David is trying to very poetically paint this portrait for us, God's presence is everywhere. You will lead me. You will sustain me. Now, at appearance, there, there seems to be a softening transition here, as if David is bringing his readers along this journey by revealing the righteous person, the righteous response to the, the godness of God, the glory of God. Yet theologians are divided here, too. Does David view this knowledge as positive or negative? One theologian, Tremper Longman, writes this, quote, read in isolation, verse 10 seems very positive. God guides and protects. Your right hand will hold me fast. The psalm, uh, God guides and protects the psalmist. But the context may lend a negative connotation. That is, he may be complaining about divine coercion. After all, verses 11 and 12 express his desire to hide from God, as well as his awareness that it is impossible to do so because God can make the night shine like the day, end quote. As Longman points out, David's disposition is unclear. It may be because, again, there are two ways to responding to this knowledge. One is comforted. The other, conflicted. Either way, comforted or conflicted, there is nowhere to hide from God. The point remains clear. Even though David's response to this point is a little ambiguous, the point is clear. There is nowhere we can go that God is not. And he emphasizes that point by even saying darkness, which limits the human's ability to see and to know, it's not even a consideration with God. 
Like darkness is as light. They're the same. God can, he is not constrained by anything. Not spatially, not, there is nothing that limits God. He has no limitation to his knowledge. He is infinite. We are finite. God's exhaustive personal knowledge, his comprehensive presence and unrestrained will are comfort to his children and terror to his enemies. As we approach the third stanza, we see a dramatic turn. David turns to the intimate personal knowledge God has of him. He says, you formed what I cannot even see. He says, you formed my insides. Literally, the word means David's kidneys. God, you formed my kidneys while I was, while I was unseen by the word, world. God, you were working in my life. And this reflection leads David to praise God. In verse 14, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And this is why, we, why many of the, the, the commentators say this is a positive thing all the way because of David's response here. But I don't think it's necessary to be. I think that tension can exist. We live in a world of tension. We are saints and sinners. We are awaiting God's final restoration. Though he is working in us, he will complete that work. Like We live in tension, and I think this psalm does a beautiful job of acknowledging that tension. Saying sometimes there's, there's challenge. There are things about God that we will not fully understand. But will I say, wonderful are your works, O God, even when I don't understand? I think that's the beauty of the tension in this psalm. Is David is writing from a very human experience about a very righteous, perfect, holy, divine creator. He's saying there are things that I don't understand but I take comfort that you are who you are. Praise is the outflow of an intimate and accurate knowledge of God. It is the result, the byproduct. As David acknowledges, regardless of how he feels about it, as he acknowledges this is who you are, God, he says the right response is to fall on my face before you and to say, wonderful are your works. High, weighty, lofty are your works, O oh God. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. In this third stanza, David reveals the personal knowledge that God has of him, and he demonstrates a very personal response to who God is. He continues, 
My frame was not hidden from you in verse 15. When I was made where no one can see me, I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. On this point, David Hamilton, or James Hamilton writes this. He says, David's purpose here is not to suggest that humans are gestated in the deep places under the earth's surface like some Tolkien novel. No, he continues. He says, he merely alludes to realities unseen by people but known by God. David is trying to get every reader to see. Like, I want you to see. We have limitations. God does not. And he knows us personally. He knows those fears that we have that we've not shared with anyone else. Those bad choices that we've made, those hurts, the things that we've heard that others have said about us that we've harbored inside. He knows these things. Those hidden dreams. Those moments of joy, like God, David paints this massive portrait. This doesn't even, we can't even begin to show you how glorious God is and how personally he knows each one of his creatures. God's exhaustive personal knowledge, his comprehensive presence, and unrestrained will are comfort to his children. As we see in this third stanza, David is comforted by this knowledge. God knows me. He says, your thoughts are precious to me in verse 17. Though they are vast, they're precious to me. They're more than the sand. But he paints this picture of an intimate, personal relationship with God. And then we come to the fourth stanza in this psalm that seems kind of out of place. As David takes a, a, a hard right turn right here, and he just says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. Like he's, he's praising God for how, how personally he knows him, how glorious God is, how big God is. And he'd be like, would you wipe out the wicked? Okay, David. Really? And he doesn't just stop there. He continues. Men of blood, depart from me. Get away from me. They speak against you with most of they, God. He's saying, God, they are conspiring against you. He says, I loathe those who rise up against you. I hate them with complete hatred. That is a strong statement. The conclusion of this psalm has brought confusion to some. Seemingly out of place with the first three stanzas, these final six verses do not necessarily contain the coffee mug verses and Instagram quotes that, were, that are found in the first three stanzas. But I would claim you cannot fully understand this psalm without this conclusion. David, after acknowledging God as God, after realizing his undeserved personal knowledge of David, after praising God for who he is and what he has done, David emphatically declares, that which you hate, O God, I too hate. 
Those who oppose you, I oppose. The world, which is in direct opposition to God's kingdom, David says, the world shall not be my friend. Now, this is not merely an Old Testament concept. James chapter 4, verse 4 says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? He takes the reverse argument. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. David says, all right, if there's two sides, I'm on God's side. I don't have to think about this one. I don't have to deliberate. I don't have to question. David says, God, I want to be like you. If there are things that you are opposed to, there is behavior that you resist, that you stand against. David says, train me to be that way. Teach me to love those things that you love and to hate those things that you hate. David calls for God to destroy wickedness by removing sinners. What David did not know at this point in redemption history is that God would destroy wickedness. God would wage war against our greatest enemy, sin. But he would not destroy the power of sin by killing all the sinners. That would mean the end of humanity, including David. Rather, God would destroy our greatest enemy by a perfect sacrifice that would satisfy the penalty for sin. Instead of judging the guilty, God would lay his life down, the innocent, the great exchange, it's called. He would place the full extent of his wrath for sin. And mark my word, God hates sin. It is the opposite of who he is. And he still feels this way toward it. But what David had not yet seen, in David's limited perspective, it was God, wipe out everyone who's a sinner. Didn't realize that would be that, that guy. <laughs> in reality, God's plan was to redeem sinners by waging war and destroying sin. To save the wicked, Christ, the innocent, spotless lamb, would give up his life. It was not David's heart or thoughts which would save him from God's wrath against the wickedness of sin, but it was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, truly and fully divine, and the Son of David, truly and fully human. He would give up his life to save those whom God would give him, those who would believe and trust completely in him. Only through Christ can we reach what David concludes this psalm with, the way everlasting. This is David's desire. Search me, O God, know my heart, try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Well, guess what, David? We have seen your story. There are grievous ways in you. You're in need of redemption reconciliation. Friends, if you have not responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ saves sinners, that Christ redeems slaves, that Christ gives life to the dead, then I plead with you today, turn to Jesus. The beauty of Psalm 139 is that God's knowledge 
has no limit. God's power has no limit. God's presence has no limit. And God has done what needed to be done. He made a way of salvation when there was no other option. So we read through the Old Testament, we see story after story. We see Solomon, the wisest of us all. Guess what? He could not fix the problem. David, the strongest warrior, the mighty king, he could not fix the problem. Again and again, we see a count of Israel falling back into rebellion and sin. The problem had, has one remedy. Christ alone. I believe David looked forward to that. He knew. David wasn't ignorant of his sin, but David knew somehow God will set right these wrongs. He had promises from God that there would be someone in his line that would come that would be truly the seed that would crush the head of the serpent as prophesied in Genesis chapter three. David looked forward to the good work that God would do. We, at this point in history, we look back and we see the glorious work God has done. And in Christ... We are offered access to know God. Not only know information about him, but in Christ, God's spirit resides in us. I remember talking with a friend early on in his discipleship process, and he made the comment like, oh, it'd be so easy. It'd be so much easier if we could just be physically with Jesus like the disciples were. And I'm like, have you read the gospels? didn't seem to really help him out too much. And I'm like, listen, this side, after Pentecost, guess what? We have God's spirit, not only next to us, but inside of us that is guiding us, comforting us, encouraging us, even rebuking us with the ultimate purpose of making us more like Christ. Psalm 139 is a beautiful psalm where David uses wonderful poetic language to express the tension of living in this world, but the desire to, to know God. And to be like him. I pray this morning, as we hear this psalm, I pray that we are comforted by the fact that God knows all our ways. If that does not bring you comfort, then I plead with you to turn to Christ. Because as Paul writes in the book of Romans, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our sins are washed clean by the blood of the cross. This is glorious news. This means that our failure to maintain the right relationship with God that would leave us separated from God under his judgment, that problem has been remedied in Christ. 
and he calls us to respond. We respond by worship. We respond by placing our trust and faith in Christ and Christ alone. Amen. May you come to know the way everlasting through Christ Jesus. May you find the reality of God's exhaustive knowledge of you a comfort and surrender your whole life to Jesus. May you regularly pray, God, your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. God, this morning, we come before you. We are humbled by this text. You are glorious. You are high. You are lofty. God, you see all things. You know all things. You are everywhere. God, this is comforting. God, we recognize that there are things we don't understand in our life, and we, we ask for your help. Help us to trust you in those seasons that we don't understand. When we have questions, help us to look to you. Help us to surrender to you. God, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that is wrestling through a difficult situation in their life right now, and they may be asking the question, God, where are you? How are you sovereign over this? But I pray that you would, you would bring peace to their heart. God, I also pray if there are any, if there is anyone here today who does not know you, Jesus, in this way, who does not trust you, that you are good, I pray, God, that salvation would come today. I pray that you would do your work in us. That you would make us more like you, Jesus. I pray these things in your name. Amen.